welcome back to The Wise Man's Page, the podcast where we read Patrick Rothfuss's The Wise Man's Fear page by page. This is page 370. Roughshod over folk like myself. And if things got difficult, he could always hush things up or bribe a judge to get himself out of trouble. But I was in Vintus now. Here, Ambrose wouldn't need to bribe the judge. If I'd accidentally jostled the baronet Petter in the street while I was still barefoot and muddy, he could have horsewhipped me bloody, then called the constable to arrest me for being a public nuisance. The constable would have done it, too, with a smile and a nod. Let me try to say this more succinctly. In the Commonwealth, the gentry are people with power and money. In Vintus, the gentry have power and money and privilege. Many rules simply do not apply to them. That meant in Vintus, social rank was of utmost importance. That meant if the baronet knew I was below him, he would lord it over me quite literally. On the other hand, as I walked across the street toward the baronet, I straightened my shoulders and raised my chin a bit. I stiffened my neck and narrowed my eyes slightly. I looked around as if I owned the entire street, and it was currently something of a disappointment. Baronet Petter, I said briskly. The man looked up, smiling vaguely as if he couldn't decide if he recognized me or not. Yes. I made a curt gesture toward the shear. You would be doing the mayor a great service if you would escort me to his estate as quickly as possible. I kept my expression stern, almost angry. Well, certainly. He sounded anything but certain. I could sense the question, the excuses beginning to bubble up in him. What? I fixed the baronet with my haughtiest stare. The Edma might be the lowest rung of the social ladder, but there are no finer actors breathing. I had been raised on the stage, and my father could play a king so regal I'd seen audiences doff their hats when he made his entrance. I made my eyes hard as an agates and looked the floored man up and down as if he were a horse I wasn't sure I cared to bet on. If the matter was not urgent, I would never impose on you this way. I hesitated and, and added a stiff, reluctant sir. Baronet Petter looked me in the eye. He was slightly off balance, but not nearly as much as I'd hoped. Like most nobility, he was self-centered as a gyroscope, and the only thing keeping him from sniffing and looking down his nose at me was his uncertainty. He eyed me trying to decide if he could risk offending me by asking my name and how we were acquainted. But I still had a final trick to play. I brought out a thin, sharp smile. The end of the page. I'm Nick. I'm Jordana. I'm Jeremy. I think I figured out how to express what was bothering me on the previous page. I think what Rothfuss is trying to communicate is that the Commonwealth has a more robust and egalitarian legal system where even though like you know barons are kind of exempt from the iron law and you see unless you have a special kind of magistrate or whatever like in general the law still applies to them equally whereas i think in vintas it's more explicit and more codified that like there are laws that like the laws are literally different if you're an aristocrat, kind of like how, you know, in certain older cultures uh, that we know, like 
you know, an aristocrat could legally murder a peasant and it was like, fine. Like, you, you, like it was not, not a crime to do that. If you could say like, oh, they were rude to me. Yeah. And something that maybe this book is trying to communicate that I don't think, and if it is, I don't think it's doing it very well, is that this is the culture that created Ambrose. Mm. Like his, his behavior is like relatively common, like par for the course in a culture like this. I'm not sure if that's what they're, what Rothfuss is kind of trying to get at because that's not really what I take away. And I actually kind of forget where Ambrose is from most of the time. And I need to be reminded that he's, that this is Ventus and he's from it, but maybe that's kind of uh, what Rothfuss is trying to say here. Yeah. Yeah. And like, if it is, maybe he could have made it a little bit more explicit that that's what's going on. I also think that this is fun because Quoth is having to, like put on an act in a way he hasn't had to in a while and like pretend to be somebody else. And his entire plan just depends on like bullying this guy and keeping him off balance by Quoth pretending that he is in a a position of more power and authority than this baronet. And his entire plan hinges on him bullying this guy so hard with his first impression that the guy won't stop to ask, I'm sorry, who are you? Because Quoth does not know what the right answer to that question is, right? He doesn't actually know, like, what social rank would I have to be to for the, to make this guy listen to me that he wouldn't yeah, already know question, who I am. Like, he doesn't have an answer to any question, really. Like, if he tells him the truth, th- then he's, you know, probably going to have to do this guy a ton of favors just to get his foot in the door. So his whole plan revolves around making such a great first impression that he doesn't ask him a single question. Mm-hmm. And he succeeds, and we love to see it. I mean, he hasn't succeeded yet on this page, but we do know that he succeeds. I think it's funny that the things he uses to manipulate the baronet are all, like, to, like he refers to them as tools. He's taking out a smile. Like, yeah. Like, like it's a thing he's taking out of a toolkit. Yeah. I or Or he's, like... He's like actively creating the thing. Like he says, he makes his eyes at, as hard as agates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, I think what Jordan is referring to is on the next page, we learn that what he brings out is the smile, the condescending smile that the porter at the Gray Man, where Denna was staying, uh, used. And that mm-hmm. is what cracks him. And I love that because that's a great bit of like Chekhov's condescension. <laughs> yeah, well, just the wording of the sentence at the very end of the page that's, I brought out a thin, sharp smile. Because it's as as though as though it's a physical thing that he is he is taking out to show. Yeah, I also like just to I, I've talked about this before that I don't really buy the way Rothfuss talks about uh, acting as a former actor. This is not my understanding of how actors work, and I don't think I, I don't know anybody who would agree. But it definitely works in the context of the book, and I think it rings true if you don't know anything about acting. And certainly this like fantasy acting culture um, of peripatetic people who own very little, uh, but, you know, have the idea that they have a toolkit of behaviors and gestures and facial expressions is definitely very attractive in a, in a fantasy setting. So I'll, I'll allow it. The, The way he talks about acting kind of reminds me of older forms of theater that they had in like Renaissance Italy that they had in like ancient Greece or, or Japan or China that are very like stylized where like, if you had a character who was like the, like the sort of stock 
clown character. There would be like a certain way that that character would be expected to behave. So like, even if they are not literally the same character from play to play, they're the same type and they kind of work the same way. That is true. Um, Commedia dell'arte is works that way in Kabuki theater as well. And Kabuki theater uh, gestures and, and stances and facial expressions uh, have distinctive meaning to them as well. So it's, it's not exactly the same thing, but it's more like, it's almost like a, a meme or a metaphor, like a certain position or stance or facial expression made by an actor. in One of these traditions would be recognized by the audience as communicating something like uh, tugging on your collar is, is a gesture that no one actually does, but it communicates something in uh, to an audience uh, in a contemporary way. Yeah, like I do do it, but I only do it because I saw it in The Simpsons. <laughs> exactly. You do it like as a way to communicate to somebody else jokingly, right? Mm-hmm. You wouldn't actually tug your collar. If I was if actually nervous? No, I wouldn't. Yeah, exactly. No. Quoth, his, his smile thin and sharp. Ambrose, his gaze haughty. <laughs> yes, the, the porter at the gray man. Smiling <laughs> condescendingly. All right. Well, uh, we have a letter here from Olaf. Olaf from Sweden who writes on the fall. Greeting, pagers. I just listened to page 358 of Wise Man's Fear, the part where Elodin and Quoth talk about chasing the wind. They sit on the edge of the stone bridge, and Quoth asks, what about falling? Talking about circumstances that might help awaken the sleeping mind. Whereupon Elodin answers, if you fall, you fall. Sometimes falling teaches us things, too. Now, do we remember how Quoth's first encounter with the Master Namer ended? Yes, by falling off the roof. What this fall was supposed to teach Quoth, I'm not sure of, but I'm certain that it's not irrelevant. Maybe this fall is the first step to awakening his sleeping mind. I'd be glad to hear your takes on this. Keep safe, signed Olaf from Sweden. I definitely didn't realize it when we were reading it, that... Like his encounter with Elodin ended in falling. Like it didn't register as a connection, but hearing the letter, I'm suddenly like, what? Oh, oh my goodness. It's connected. Oh, oh no. <laughs> yeah. I definitely think that's intentional. I read this oddly enough. I read this more as like both taught Elodin something like I, I don't have a well thought out argument for this, but what you pointing this out says to me is that, um, or what it might me think of is that Elodin maybe reconsidered his method upon encountering Quoth. That's something about like Quoth's uh, attitude toward naming or Quoth's journey toward becoming a namer uh, revealed something to Elodin about the nature of naming. And so Elodin is now maybe more receptive to Quoth's ideas. I don't know. I just, I feel like this scene has them in a more um, like almost talking as peers talking almost as equals with Elodin, maybe being a little bit more knowledgeable, but there's certainly, it it's feels not less like a master student relationship. Yeah. It's less confrontational. It's more conversational. Um, and I definitely feel like Elodin respects Quoth more in it. Um, so that's a really, I'm really glad you pointed this out Olaf, because obviously we glossed over it. Uh, I, as I said, as I said, I think it's intentional but what it's saying about Elodin, I don't know. I mean, isn't it possible that Elodin just felt bad that uh, he like negged Quoth into jumping off a roof and 
maybe that made him reconsider. <laughs> so he's trying to like retroactively be like, no, 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 falling is good. Actually, it's good that you fell <laughs> yeah. off the roof because falling is the first step. <laughs> Why do we fall, Master Quo? So we can learn to pick ourselves back up. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Because you um, yeah, no, Michael Caine would probably be uh, a better, like, Arwell or even a Lauren. I could see Michael Caine doing a cool Lauren, actually. Mm. But he'd need to be one of the older... Michael characters. Michael Caine... Michael Caine should be... Michael Caine. Now, you have to say, my cocaine, but in, in a sort of a British twang. You go, my, my cocaine. cocaine. My cocaine. That's how you say his be, name. He should be... He's, yeah, he'd be a good Ben. Yeah. If Christopher Nolan directed it, he would be. You know what? That's true. Because he would only be in the movie for like 10 minutes, but he'd be great. Yeah, and he'd cash a sweet check. Mm. And he'd, he'd deserve every penny, goddammit. Yep. I could see Nolan being into it, right? The idea of the frame narrative. He'd do something with it where it like goes backwards or it's upside down or something. or Especially if it's a time loop. If it was a time loop, Nolan would be like salivating all over it. Yeah, but he'd also, like, leech everything magical and colorful and weird and interesting out of it and make it, like, the most po- boring possible version of itself. Yeah. And I see true. this as someone who, like, genuinely, like, likes most of Nolan's movies. But that motherfucker, for a guy who directs big-budget action blockbusters, he is a really visually boring director. Like, he never met an action scene that he didn't want to shoot where it was just people in su- suits shooting guns at each other from behind cover. <laughs> like goddamn, man! I feel like he's not that interested in action scenes either. He's interested in like the ideas. Well, then why does he keep making he... action movies? Uh, that's probably the best way to get his ideas out there. I don't know, man. Anyway, uh, this is not the Christopher Nolan podcast. That's on tomorrow's page. Um, yeah, but I really hope that uh, visionary director Zack Snyder comes on board and shares his vision of the the Kvothe saga. We get to see everybody's tits. If if Zack Snyder directed this movie, A, Kvothe would like kill the Chandrian in the first five minutes in a big slow-mo action scene. And second, we would see like Denna would always be topless. And it would be deep and interesting. <laughs> yes, the way Roth is always intended. That's right. Uh, talk Did you about- see the the promo the promo photo of the Joker dressed as Jesus? Yeah, that's because the Joker's fucking deep, okay. And I, yeah, I was gonna say, what do you think the message is? What do, <laughs> what do you think that uh, Snyder is trying to communicate with this with this promo photo? I think the message is best communicated in the final line of the newest trailer for Zack Snyder's Four Hour Justice League, which is literally is it, the Joker it, saying, "We live, we in, live a in a society, <laughs> don't we, Batman?" <laughs> <laughs> what does it say that? The Joker has become Jokerfied. I think it says that we live in the societyest society of all. Yes, it is in fact the most society. It is so Jokerfied that not even the Joker can escape becoming Jokerfied. Yeah, in in the world of the Jokerfied, the one with damage written on his forehead is king. <laughs> uh, no, that's that's good. Hang on, Jaron. We can we can we can workshop this. This is a good tweet. In the world of the Jokerfied, the well-adjusted is king. In the world of the Jokerfied, the one who does not post is king. I don't know. We can we can figure this out. I think I got it right the first time personally, but you know you can yeah, find right, out whatever you can find out how we got these scars <laughs> on tomorrow's page of. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> the wind. wind.